I want to uh, segue a little bit on what Jesse just shared with you all. Sometimes you think, well, I don't have much to give. Give what you can. What you invest in there will your heart be. So if you invest in, in the building, your heart will go to this place. So investing like this is really important to do because then your heart goes to the thing that you give your money towards. And as we do this collectively, we can do it as debt-free as possible. And so I'd encourage you to take that uh, challenge seriously today and pray about it. And as Pastor Jesse mentioned, there are several ways where you can uh, get the card back to us. Um, I'm not feeling the greatest today, so if you're wondering why I'm sitting down, I went to a conference this last week in Billings, and it was a wonderful conference for our uh, district. And I came back Friday night, and guess what? I had that tremendously fun stomach junk. I have no idea what it is, but uh, I've been keeping my 10-foot diameter circle from people. And so I will not be shaking your hands after church, and you should be saying, amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know what I mean? And so just so you know, I'm not being unfriendly. I'm being smart, and I just don't want to get you sick, okay? Um, so here we go. We're going to jump into the message this morning. I'm going to begin with, the, with a, a question for you. Uh, and I want to respond to this question, okay? So just so you know, you can actually shout her out uh, to me. What do you call a group of lions? A pride, yeah. It's one of the times when the label pride is good. It kind of indicates that lions are uh, regal in nature and elevated, so they're called a pride. Now, if you have a, a group of owls associated with each other, owls being known for wisdom, they're called a parliament. And if you have a group of monkeys, they're simply called a troop. And so sometimes, I'm going to be honest, I feel more like the troop than anything in my own life. I don't know how you all feel, but uh, these last two have nothing to do with the pride. I just got on the internet and couldn't stop. Um, this morning, we're once again in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're on week nine of our study of becoming the body of Jesus Christ. And this morning brings us to this really big human problem. I think that every single person in here has this issue. Um, something that we don't like to admit that we have, but every single one of us struggles with this. And I want you to really listen to the message this morning because of all the messages I've given recently, this one rates right at the top. I feel kind of bad because I don't feel real good today, but in my weakness, God will show himself to be strong. And I want you to hear this today. Hear what I'm going to share with you today because it's on pride. This message this morning is on pride. And all of us, to some degree, struggle with this issue in our lives. And for sure, we can see Paul pointing it out to the early Corinthian church. So I'm going to read for you now uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, we're now in chapter 4. I'm going to begin with verse 6 through 13. Paul picks up this teaching this morning, um, kind of reiterating that, it, that we're not supposed to follow him or Paulus. We're not supposed to follow men. We're supposed to follow God. Otherwise, it builds pride into our lives. Listen to what he says now in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 through 13. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. He gets real sarcastic now. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. 
how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Ooh, that's tough, isn't it? Here's the problem identified in the scripture for us this morning. Some in the Corinthian church had a pride problem. It's obvious, right? Some in the Corinthian church had a pride problem. Now, pride just means this, a puffed up, boastful, inflated self-view. It just means puffed up, boastful, inflated self-view. In that Greek culture of that time, humility was not seen as a virtue. Jesus, when he came on the scene, he was the one that elevated humility to the status of being a virtue. So for the Corinthians, it was their natural propensity to be a proud people because that's what was promoted in their culture. And the statement here that we're not to go beyond what is written was emphasizing that there's a biblical boundary that we're not supposed to idolize teachers or one another for that matter. We're not supposed to elevate human beings to this status of of following them and boasting about them. That's what Paul means when he says, don't go beyond these boundaries. They were not to exalt people. They were not to boast in such ones. They were doing this, the Corinthian church, and much more. They were boasting in their talents and their positions and their affiliations. So Paul puts them through this very, very hard-hitting you know, list of questions. And they're really questions designed to shock proud people into humility. All right? These are questions designed to shock proud people into a sense of humility. First of all, number one is this. Are you seeing, are you wrongly seeing yourself as superior? Are you wrongly seeing yourself as superior? I'm going to tell you something today. I fall in this category too. We all think we're special. Amen? We, we have this natural human propensity to think we're special. Our problems are unique. They're worse than everybody else's. We just have that self-centeredness, that kind of natural inclination to, to, to just see ourselves that way. It's called pride. Two, what do you have that you did not receive? God dispenses all good gifts to his creation. And then three, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? These are hard-hitting questions meant to take the proud person to a status of humility. Listen, think with me on this for a moment. Maybe this will help bring some of these questions home to us. Do you realize what you have simply because you've been born in this country? Do you realize the blessings you have, the benefits you have, the opportunities you have simply by being born here. You've done nothing to deserve that. You just got born. Think about what your life would be like if you were born in another country, maybe in a real difficult country, 
a third world country that's struggling all the time, where there wasn't as many opportunities. How would your life have been different? Because you've been born in this country, you're blessed in, in some regards with opportunities that a lot of other people on this planet don't literally get. And the questions here by Paul are meant to raise in us some self-awareness. I'm seeing this over and over and over again in the Bible lately. They had so much of the Bible is about raising our self-awareness, understanding who we are and who God is. And once again, Paul is raising self-awareness. He's saying, listen, get who you are. Get what life is all about. And Paul does this Hard-hitting contrast is very sarcastic between the Corinthian church, some in the Corinthian church, and the humble life that the apostles were um, living out. Um, And I could sit here and point out those differences for you, but I think they were pretty well articulated in our reading this morning. And so what I'm going to do, instead of doing that, is instead of talking on that comparison, I'm going to talk to you on the antidote, the solution to pride. It's humility. And so this morning, for most of the message, I just want to talk to you on what it means to be a person of humility. And I want to begin here with this very revealing statement found in Ephesians, or excuse me, in the epistle of James. It's found in James chapter 4, verse 6, on on why humility is so very important. And here's what we're told in James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Did you hear that? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This could be stated this way, kind of expanding on this thought. God opposes those who think they're in control. God opposes those who think, I'm the exception, I'm special. When I say the word special, I mean God's gift to humanity, special. God opposes those who boast as though they did not receive what they received from God. God opposes those who reject him and arrogantly attempt to do life as though God does not exist. Now, here's what this means. Such ones don't receive blessing from God. They don't receive God's grace. This is a big honking deal. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, church, you need to hear this from me this morning. This is from my heart. If we have pride issues going on in our lives, it doesn't matter what the justification is. You are not in a place of receiving grace from God, and it stifles you. It takes away from you. Humility is a big deal. The problem of pride matters because God opposes such ones. It stops the flow of grace. Do you think you have any pride issues like the Church of 1 Corinthians? When I read this, man, you know, I did this message before we went to Billings this last week because I knew I'd be gone all week. I'm glad I did because when I came back, I was in no status to write a message. So I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, and I realized in my own life, This beast called pride rears his ugly head all the time, way more than I want to admit it. I'm constantly getting kind of dinged on that area of my life because I feel it rise up in me. I just get irritated. 
How about you? And it's the source of it oftentimes is a, a pride thing going on. So on your note guide is this little exercise I want us to do together for just a few moments. I want you to ask God, do I have areas of pride in my life that I need to address? Maybe write them down. Anymore, I write things down and say, God, I want you to deal with this in my life. Is there an area where you think, yeah, God, if I'm honest, I'm kind of a proud person in this regard. I'm going to help you in this exercise by giving you some hints of how this can work so you can, can take this for what it's worth. I hate to say it, but a lot of this is way too close to home than I want to admit right now. But um, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give you some ideas about how pride can manifest itself in your life. Uh, first of all, it might be this way. Now, you can write one of these down if it really applies to you and, and then pray about it during the course of the next week or two or three or next decade of years or whatever <laughs> you know, it takes you to, to, to deal with this. But here's one where I see it all the time in my own life and I see it in the life of other people. A failure to admit your sins. Just a failure to admit your sins. That's pride. It, 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 we're told in the Bible we're supposed to confess our sins to one another uh, so that we can be cleansed, so that God's forgiveness can come into our lives. When we, when we don't admit we are, are sinning or doing some things with a sinful attitude, we stop the flow of forgiveness into our own lives. We stop the flow of grace into our lives. Here's one that I, I think is a real problem for uh, us in a kind of community like we live in, um, where image means so much. Looking good versus Authenticity. Looking good versus authenticity. In the times of the Bible, the Pharisees were into this image management, but their hearts were so far from God. And so Jesus comes along and he says to these Pharisees in his gentle way, you are whitewashed sepulchers. And what he was saying is you've got all this death and decay going on inside of you. You're, you're the sepulcher full of dead boats and you're busy whitewashing the outside of that thing. And what the Lord Jesus was saying is God wants authenticity from you. He wants real confession and real honest exchange. And that's very humbling, isn't it? It's humbling at times to admit, God, I'm a whitewashed sepulcher. <laughs> I'm worried about image management and you want to see my heart. Three, here's another suggestion. Do you always have to be right? Four, do you always have to be heard? Can you be around a group of people, even have a whole bunch of good ideas, but not need to be heard? Do you need recognition? These are not easy. They're hard. Listen, one day you're going to stand before Jesus Christ. He'll recognize you. In this life, you probably won't get recognized, even when you do good things for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what? One day you'll stand before Jesus Christ and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? If you have the right heart and you're doing it as unto him. We don't need recognition in this life because Jesus will give us the recognition that we deserve at the end of the age. Do you have an elevated view of yourself? Man, I tell you what, people struggle with this. Sometimes we struggle with not having an elevated view. We have just the opposite problem, maybe a diminished view. But this is uh, thinking I would never do what he or she did because I would never have that kind of problem in my life or I would never succumb to that kind of problem in my life. That's having an elevated view of yourself, and that's pride. Here's my big concern one of this list is this. 
not being teachable. I see an awful lot of people who are not very teachable. This is the I know better. I get some input sometimes into my life and into my, uh, the ministry here at Grace Point from people, and I am just sometimes almost shocked at their arrogance. Now, I'm not saying that about any of you, amen? But sometimes I'll get a note or something on some aspect of a service or something, and it's just so arrogant. And the person is here, and they're going to teach me, and I'm down here. And I don't mind having dialogue, and I don't mind people disagreeing with me, but when there's this big arrogance thing, it really is a stumbling block to honest exchange. And oftentimes, I've had uh, some notes where I go, it's not even worth responding back because this person already knows everything, right? And I'm just wasting mine and their time because they're just stinking smart. (laughs) And so we have to be very teachable. Lately, I've been asking Jesus, make me teachable. Just give me this humble, submissive heart to you that I'm just very teachable. And here's the last one I, I, I just want to mention here that I think is a source of pride. We've seen it a lot in this recent election, thinking that a person or an institution can do what only God can do. Thinking that a man or a woman can, can really be the salvation of our life. Only Jesus can be the salvation of our life. We can't trust in men or women to, to do things that only God can do. Only God can change a heart. Let God work in your life. Look at, at, at your life honestly. Do some self-awareness kind of moment here. Is there an area of pride that, that God is saying to you, I want, I want to deal with this right now? Because God will go to great lengths to knock that baby out of your life, right? He, he sometimes isn't so subtle. I'm reminded of the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar is a, a character in the Old Testament and at this moment, God was uh, ra- raising up the Babylonian Empire to bring judgment on the Israelites because the Israelites had turned from God. So God raised up this pagan culture to bring judgment on his people. Seems kind of strange that God would do that, but that's what he does at times. And the leader of this Babylonian culture was this dude named Nebuchadnezzar. It's a great name, isn't it? Some of you who are young and still having children, one of you needs to name your child Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, it'd be Nebuchadnezzar. No, anyway. Um, anyway, so Nebuchadnezzar uh, got full of himself. And really, he was God's instrument to bring judgment. And God was blessing his kingdom. And he had done nothing to merit this blessing. But at one point in Daniel chapter 4, he says this. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And he must have stuck his chest out while he said that. And I read that and I go, oof, duh. Are you kidding me? We're told here in Daniel that while these words were still on his lips, God passed judgment on this guy. And for a time he was driven from his people, he ate grass like cattle until his hair grew really long, put it in a man bun like Pastor Dave. His nails got like claws, got really long, and God was proving the sovereignty over him. Eventually, everything was restored to Nebuchadnezzar, and here is the conclusion he reaches about life from Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. 
this is so meaningful. This is a pagan king. This is a culture far from God. Are you hearing this? Here's what he says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God will go to great lengths and knock pride right out of us. That's not a bad thing because pride is a stumbling block to God's grace. Here's the deal on pride. We often don't see that problem in our lives, do we? We don't know. I'm a proud person. And sometimes things come our way that reveal them to us. And we have to be receptive and open to the Holy Spirit working this way in our lives. I uh, have shared this before, but here recently, so I had this heart issue happen here a few months ago and had some stents put in, right? That just rocked my world because I had some pride in this area of my life, I'll be honest. I had exercised most of my life. I ate pretty good, and I, I wasn't too bad. Every now and then I'd have a cookie, right? Cookies are your friend. I used to think that. And I, I remember after I had it all happen to me, I'm going through cardio rehab. And it was humbling. As they're telling me, don't walk too fast. Just take it easy. Take it slow. That's all I heard for about a month. If anyone tells me to take it slow again, I'm going I'm to just scream. You know, I couldn't take it much slower than this. And I begin to realize, I was thinking all along, this would never happen to me. I'm superior. I have exercised. I have been a good steward. You know what that was and is? It's pride. God will knock pride right out of us, won't he? Because on the heels of that comes grace. So let's talk about how to be humble for a few moments. Here's a definition of biblical humility. Uh, Let me just give this to you, then I'm going to talk about uh, why I've come to this definition. Humility is seeing myself for who I am. So it's just having an honest understanding of who I am, self-awareness, and seeing God for who he is. There's definitely the idea of contrast here. God's creator, I'm the creation. I'm seeing myself who I am. I'm seeing God for who he is. This definition of knowing who I am and knowing who God is is kind of illustrated all throughout the book of James. Let me show you how this works and why I've come to this conclusion uh, for the definition of humility. So in James chapter 1, verse 9, uh, we're told this. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Strange wording, right? Let me explain what this is saying. Often this is interpreted to mean the one who is poor is more spiritual than the one who has money. Not a right rendering of the scripture. That's not what it means. Being poor doesn't make you automatically spiritual. The issue is the love of money. And if you're poor or rich, you can have a love of money, right? I just went weirdly dead here. Um, You could think money is a solution. But James is saying this here. Get this. Please hear this because it feeds into our definition of humility, knowing who I am and knowing who God is. 
James is saying here that earthly position, the one of humble circumstances, the one with a lowly, insignificant, weak or poor social economic status, they're not defined by that. They're defined by who they are in Jesus Christ. So you have to take pride in your high position in Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying here? He's kind of playing with some words here, but he's trying to get us to understand your humble circumstances don't define you. You're defined in Jesus Christ. Humility, knowing who I am, knowing who God is. So here's the first kind of clarification point to that, that uh, definition of humility. You are defined by Jesus. You are defined by Jesus. I find my purpose and I find my definition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility isn't self-abasement. It's not saying, I'm just a slug. You know, I'm just a worm. It's not that. That's not humility. Humility isn't about uh, thinking lesser of yourself. It's just thinking less about yourself. It's, humility isn't thinking, you hear that? It's not thinking lesser of yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself much. It's knowing who you are. It's knowing who God is. Now, James goes on, and he kind of compares and contrasts the person of humble status to the person who's kind of a well-off individual. And he says in James chapter 1, verses uh, 10 through 11, these words, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So a quick reading of this can once again give, lead you to, a, I think, an erroneous conclusion. Rich equals bad. No, that's not what Paul's saying here. In the chapter of James we're, we're taking the scripture from, he began this chapter by, by basically saying, you need to apply wisdom into trials. You need to think rightly in your trials. And you have to have the right perspective. So if you're a person of humble circumstances, then you have to understand who you are in Jesus Christ. On the flip side, if you're a person of means and riches, then accepting Jesus Christ for you will be a very, very humbling experience because you have to admit, my riches can't save me. My you know, economic, social class doesn't make me exempt from my need uh, of Jesus Christ. And, and James says, you're, you're supposed to rejoice then in this humiliation, this, this acknowledgement of your desperation for, for Jesus Christ. You're supposed to rejoice in that humiliation uh, knowing that it, you are dependent on Jesus Christ. One commentary said it this way, the very same treatment that exalts the poor man and gives him a new sense of worth also humbles the rich man. The trial of the rich person will be the willingness to acknowledge his or her need of Jesus and maybe being ostracized by their social economic group or maybe being thought of as being weak or strange or whatever words you want to use there. Um, and, and, and James is saying, listen, take joy in this humiliation. Do you see how this feeds into this definition of humility? It's knowing who I am, knowing who God is. Beside all that, your riches are going to just vanish anyway. They're just going to be blown away in an instance. And, and, and basically, James refers to what is called the Sirocco wind here, uh, this Middle Eastern wind that would come and just dry everything up and just, just devastate it in a matter of, 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 of a short 
amount of time. Um, when we die, all the riches we have accumulated, they're just gone. It's just like a Sirocco wind just took them away. And, and so James is saying, don't put your dependence on those things. You must depend on Jesus Christ, which brings us to this point two, then uh, the, uh, uh, further defining our definition of, you know, humility. It's knowing who I am, knowing who God is. You must see your dependence on Jesus. You just must see your dependence on Jesus. So let's talk for a few moments on becoming a person of humility. This is how we're going to conclude this morning. It starts with the right attitude. It starts with the right attitude. I always am amazed by this story, but in Matthew chapter 18, the disciples, they came to Jesus Christ. And they said, who's the greatest among us? Yikes. Jesus calls his little child forward and he puts him before the disciples. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in heaven. In the Jewish culture, a child knew his or her position. Total submission to their parents. If they acted wrong, they could even be stoned for wrong behavior. Theirs was to be a place of total submission. So when Jesus puts his little child before his disciples, he said, you need to be humble like this little child. What he was saying to them, you have to have the attitude of total submission to God. If you want to have the right kind of attitude, it's all about total submission. That is the attitude of humility, total submission to God. Secondly, like usual, humility needs to be lived out. It has to be lived out. In Matthew chapter 20, the mother of Zebedee's uh, sons asked Jesus to allow them to sit on his right and his left hand in his coming kingdom. That's just audacious. I think she thought, like a lot of mothers, you have not if you ask not. Why not just ask? And Jesus did some clarifying teaching because all the disciples were getting fired up because they all wanted to sit the right and the left hand of Jesus in his coming kingdom. And Jesus clarified it all for them by saying this in verses 26 through 27 of Matthew 20. Not so with you. You shouldn't even think like this. Not so with you. You shouldn't even be thinking this way. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So how are we going to do life if we're uh, people of humility? We're going to do life as a servant to God and to people. We're just going to do life as a servant. In Exodus chapter 21, we see this really cool story about what it means to be a servant, the kind that's being talked about here. In Exodus 21, Moses is giving the law. God is giving him the law to give to the people, Israel. And at one point, he begins to talk about a Hebrew having a Hebrew slave. For six years, that person would be indentured to that fellow Hebrew, but on the seventh year, he would be released from his obligation and would be set free. Now, if during that time of servitude, he had a wife given to him and then children by that wife, they would stay to the Hebrew master. They wouldn't go free with him. So if at the end of the six years, and he gets to the seventh year, if he decides, I don't want to leave my master, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my kids, he would make that known to his Hebrew master, and he would be taken to the door posts of the home, and an owl would be driven through his ear. His ear would be pierced. And that would forever signify he's an indentured servant to that 
person as long as you shall live. In the New Testament, we're to love Jesus like this, just like this person did in the Old Testament in Exodus 21. We're to love Jesus like that. Only Jesus doesn't pierce our ear, he pierces our heart. And we're to see ourselves as an indentured servant to Jesus Christ. That's how we're supposed to see ourselves. So humility contains two S words, submit and servant. Submit and servant. If you can just remember that, if you walk out of here and say, I want to be a person of humility, then your attitude will be one of submission, total submission to Jesus Christ, and the way you do your life will be that of a servant. Amen? If you do that, you're well on your way to becoming the person of humble conditions that then is the recipient of the grace of God. We're going to go into a time of communion now, so I want you to prepare your hearts. Jesus said these telling words, the servant is not greater than the master. So today as we partake in communion, realize like Christ served us, right? And what we do in communion is we acknowledge Jesus served us. He died for us. Greater love has no man than this that he lays down his life for a friend. Jesus laid his life down for us. As we take communion today, our attitude ought to be that of Christ. Submission to God, service to God. Amen? And I would encourage you to use this moment as a moment of reflection on that, that part of the teaching uh, this morning as we do communion. Let me give you some instructions here. Um, if you have a gluten issue, there's gluten-free wafers here and up by Jason in the sound booth if you're up there on the balcony. Downstairs, you're going to come forward and take the communion elements. If you're in the front part of the church sanctuary, if you're in the back part of the middle rows, you know to go to the back, right? I'm not touching anything up here. Dave's going to do all that. Just so you can have that peace of mind, all right? You don't want what I have. This is nasty, whatever it is. Um, and then once we have all received the elements, please hold them and we'll partake together. Um, feel free to worship with the praise band as they sing uh, a song. And just, I can't encourage you enough. Humility is life-changing. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We live in a culture right now that's super offended all the time. I'm not going to read the quote from the book I have here. I don't have time. But, but if we're going to go out to a culture that's super easily offended, we can't go out arrogantly. We have to go out humbly. We have to say things of truth. We have to interact with our culture as truth people of Jesus Christ. But we have to do so humbly submitted to our God, serving our God. Amen? So, so this... This whole idea of humility, not only is it about grace, reception from God, it's also about effective interaction with culture. It's really important. Let's pray and then we'll go ahead and, and, and grab the communion elements. Would you bow your head? Look, God, I want to just consecrate now uh, these elements of communion to you. Will you make this a holy sacrament, we pray? Would you take these elements and just uh, bless them to our bodies? I pray that we would rejoice in who you are that you came and you died for our sins, and that uh, in you, Christ, we're a new creation, and the old is gone and the new has come. We rejoice in all that, Lord, and, and as we take this communion this morning, Lord, we, we zoom in on this idea that, like you, we're, we're to be in total submission to God our Father and serving God and others. 
And as we do that, we'll be reflective of you and reflective of what it means to be humble. God, we love you and praise you and we just bless you today. In your name, Jesus. Amen.